Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, listeners. My guest today is a remarkable woman. Professor Virginia Shaw teaches innovation and entrepreneurship at the National University of Singapore, as well as at Inseed and SMART, the Singapore-MIT Alliance for Research and Technology. Dr. Shaw started her career as a programmer at Burroughs and went on to found or co-found numerous high-tech companies in Singapore and China with listings on the NASDAQ and Hong Kong stock exchanges. She co-authored the book, Asia's Entrepreneurs, Dilemmas, Risks, and Opportunities. Today, in addition to teaching, researching, and mentoring young entrepreneurs, Dr. Shaw is an active angel investor with 16 companies in her portfolio worldwide. She also serves on the World Economic Forum's Future Council. Professor Shaw, it's such an honor to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor for me to be on your podcast. Oh, I assure you, it's it's my honor to have you as a guest. There's so much I want to talk to you about. You have so many interesting ideas that you've been talking about in your work in Singapore and elsewhere. And I guess the one I want to start with is VUCA. Now, I was familiar with VUCA, V-U-C-A, as it was coined by the military, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity, for those who haven't heard this term before. But when you and I started talking about this, you added a fifth letter to it that I had not heard before, which was an H, making it V-U-C-H. What does the H stand for and why is it so important? Well, the H stands for hyperconnectivity. And it's very relevant in today's context. Just to give you an example, why hyperconnectivity actually adds to the VUCA previously, right? So take an example of Afghanistan, which actually was the reason why this word came out of the military. You probably uh, know of the very messy situation that is in the news around the extraction of the US military from the Afghanistan situation. But because Everything is reported live. Now, it used to be that, yes, CNN was sort of brought to the world, uh, you know, during the first Gulf War. And CNN exploded on the scene because it was able to provide, you know, 24 by 7 coverage of this. All right. But now we have 24 by 7 conversations by everyone around this around the situation, adding to the, uh, the pressure, giving more pressure and adding complexity to even an already volatile situation. So I think hyperconnectivity is under looked at or underestimated in how it adds to the complexity and the volatility. Another uh, situation that's quite interesting, and I like to use these examples that relates to countrywide type of situations. During the middle of COVID, you know, I live in Asia, so I, I'm in touch with what's going on around in this region. In 2020, around October 2020, 
the Thai citizens, particularly the young people, uh, started protesting uh, in front of the German embassy. And you're wondering, oh, why would that happen? Because, you know, you don't, I don't recall, anybody would call any kind of diplomatic conflict between Thailand and Germany around that time, right? But it turns out what happened was that, you know, the Thai king has a home in Germany. And that in itself is not a big deal, except that uh, apparently he spent some time there during the COVID lockdown in Thailand, and somehow this news got out. And the young people started, you know, sharing this bit of news, and there was a lot of indignation that this happened. So they, you know, gathered up and protested in front of the German embassy. And you've got to imagine for the German embassy or consulate, they're probably wondering, how did we get into this situation? What does it have (laughs) to do with what we do? So what I'm trying to say is hyperconnectivity can introduce volatility and complexity to players that didn't even realize that they were part of this uh, new founding conflict. And this happens all around us everywhere. So you don't know what new things will come to you just because we are so interconnected now. That's such an interesting example that you just shared there about the situation in Thailand with the German government. You know, I always think about the situation that happened in this country a few years ago with United Airlines, when there was this very high profile incident in which a passenger was literally beaten bloody and dragged off a plane by police because the airline wanted to give his seat to one of their crew members who needed to get to another flight. And 10 years ago, this this is an incident that would not have traveled beyond the confines of that aircraft beyond the people who flew on that flight. And the worst case mm-hmm. scenario for United would have been that this, this passenger sued them and maybe won a, a few dollars from him and probably told his friends and family about it. But now with the hyper-connectivity that exists because of smartphones, it was broadcast all over the world in real time almost, and it destroyed at least temporarily billions of dollars in shareholder value. That's Beautiful example, Bryce. And you back it up a, a little bit and you can see how we got to today's where hyperconnectivity creates such an issue. We've been doing globalization for probably the past three decades now, right? Where globalization is the main thrust of growth everywhere. So now all of our economies are interconnected, global trade, global companies, global commerce. And when you add to this global hyperconnectivity, that's when you have situations such as the United Airlines. So yeah, this is a, a, bit, a real situation for large companies, multinationals to pay attention to. And of course, an example I showed, uh, even governments. Yeah, even, even governments and, and, and militaries too. I mean, I know in my work with the US military, one of their concerns is that they now have to plan when they're planning military operations for what is the impact going to be if a person witnessing this operation live streams this? What is that going to do? And, you know, or what if what if a, a Russian news service puts a drone over the operational area and films what's going on and, and broadcast it in real time? What are the strategic and geopolitical implications of that? Again, another right. example of hyperconnectivity. Right. right. And how that makes the complexity exponentially even more. Right. Right. And we're seeing this now in supply chains too, right? With the current chips shortage, 
that's crippling automakers and so many other industries around the world, that's also a symptom of hyperconnectivity, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the shipping industry, the logistics challenges, that all adds to a number of what I call breaks into the system that we've been used to. So I teach this and, we, and I talk about it to my executive participants about the systems we've grown up with, or been conditioned to, how it's no longer serving us in this time of volatility. So what can leaders do to better cope with this hyperconnected world that we live in now? Well, I always advocate having multiple models to use when you assess a situation. You know, we've um, all been conditioned to manage based on around planning, you know, the PDCA cycle, as you know, plan, do, check, act. And that presumes a set of conditions that's quite at least predictable, but at least at a pace that you can react to in terms of PDCA. Okay. And so we've come up with a lot of management models around this context and we've been practicing it and it works well. But I think in the coming age where volatility, hyperconnectivity and all this complexity around us, I think all of us need to adopt multiple mental models on how to assess situation the way it is. So don't discard the PDCA. Today, we're using what's called lean and agile, which is essentially PDCA, but at a faster cycle and more lean. Don't discard any of this. These models still work, but adopt a much more flexibility and adaptive mindset. And uh, so I came up with this AAA mindset that describes this. What does AAA stand for? Well, AAA stands for Agility, which everybody uh, is familiar with, everybody knows that, you know, especially with the uh, digital transformation, many corporates uh, and large enterprises have already adopted agility mindset. The second one is quite interesting. It's called ambidexterity. It's this grew out of some scholarly work based on Brown around James March. He did a lot of work on organizational ambidexterity, and I adapted this to individual cognition on how you think about two radically different ideas and how to hold them both in your head on terms of possibility. For example, incremental impact versus exponential impact when you look at a situation coming at you, okay? And the third A is anti-fragility. That's a word I picked up from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he's the, of course, the famous author from uh, having written the book, Black Swan. And he defines it, and Wikipedia defines it as a property of systems that increase in capability to thrive as a result of stress, shocks, volatility, and so forth. Okay. So AAA, uh, why did I say AAA and put all three together? The new way of thinking or the way we should approach VUCA is really not to say any one model works, but rather to hold these different models in our cognitive toolkit, if you will, and to use it at the appropriate situation. And agility is well known, right? We, the capacity to identify and capture opportunities more quickly than rivals do. This is a definition uh, I picked up from McKinsey, all right? So this is where you use it for 
looking at new opportunities and moving fast and be able to do fast experimentation, fast exploration. And that's well known. That's where the startup world is and that's where all the corporate digital transformation is working on. And dexterity is more interesting. That's the one where you have to have the ability to hold and maintain simultaneously two radically different concepts and to be able to switch back and forth purposefully to achieve specific objectives. This is not so easy. We tend to have a certain way of thinking. We're conditioned to it, right? And, and many of us tend to think incrementally. Well, why? It's evolution, right? We, you know, evolution says that we were running on the, you know, African savanna, uh, you know, so everything is quite linear for us. So it's very hard for us to grasp the concept of exponential, exponential thinking. So I think ambidexterity is an interesting way of training your mind, not discard the possibility that this change could be both incremental or it could be exponential and not to make up your mind so fast to discard it, to keep it at the forefront. All right, until more data comes in for you to then decide which way is it. And then anti-fragility is around how do you prepare yourself in a world of volatility? What do you have to do? And that's essentially what AAA is. That's amazing. There's, there's so much to unpack there. And I think to me, what I hear as a common theme through all of these, through agility, ambidexterity, and anti-fragility is the need to create plans with optionality and to have the confidence to be able to pivot rapidly as necessary as circumstances change, as you're executing your plans, which you can only do really if you create plans with optionality kind of baked into them. And that's very different than you know the way that people develop strategy even 10 years ago, isn't it? Absolutely. You nailed it. Uh, the real benefit of adopting this kind of mindset is to upfront admit that you don't know. You don't know the future. Furthermore, it's unknowable because of VUCA. There are so many things, there are so many situations developing simultaneously and the hyperconnectivity adds exponentially to their volatility. So the first uh, concept that everyone needs to adopt is that you don't know and it's unknowable. So instead of trying to go out there and make plans around what you believe will happen, rather be prepared for possible multiple outcomes. And so you have to have the cognitive capacity, if you will, to play out these multiple scenarios in your head of potential outcome, like almost like a Rubik cube in your mind and to keep track of them and to place optionality in your mind as you have these multiple options and threads going and then making the judgment call when the situation develops to a point where there's real empirical evidence that tells you or at least suggests that it's going towards one of those options. Now, at that point, you can make a more informed decision. Do you double down on this? Uh, uh, do you go all in or do you continue to do optionality? 
And I argue that for executives, that's exactly what you're paid to do, is to exercise that very high level of judgment. I think that's such an important concept. I was just talking to one of my colleagues, uh, friends, uh, David Landsman, who's a former head of Tata in Europe and a former British ambassador to Greece. And he made the point that there's a certain point in your career where you get promoted to the point where your job is no longer doing, it's thinking, thinking about what other people need to do. And that a lot of times leaders don't recognize when they've crossed that threshold and they continue to try to do, which, which at that level becomes reacting rather than thinking. That's right. And, and actually, if you couple that with the fact that many of the middle management jobs and likely a lot of professional work will also be automated as we go towards more and more digitization and autonomous anything. You really have to think about what is the value you add as a professional, as an executive? And it comes down to judgment. And for example, let's, let's, let's take this apart. Sure. AI, artificial intelligence. It works well when there's data, meaning it works well when there's information from previous patterns, correct? Right. But it doesn't work at all in brand new situations. And so who would be, uh, what types of, I guess, entities that would be best to navigate in unknown situations? That's us humans. Humans are properly trained to think about volatility, about optionality. So we become the, I guess, the trainers of the AI that comes later, if it becomes a pattern. That reminds me of, of one of my favorite books in recent years, Machine Platform Crowd, which makes the point that people are missing the point about artificial intelligence, that the real value of artificial intelligence is not the ability to replace people with thinking machines, with, with smart systems, with intelligent systems or machine learning, but to use those tools, to use artificial intelligence and machine learning in conjunction with human decision makers, as you've just suggested, that that's the real potential is to use it as kind of a force multiplier, as a, as a kind of jetpack for us to, to be able to make good decisions more rapidly because we, the machines can process vast amounts of information and find the patterns far more quickly than any human being can, but the still, there's still no replacement there's still no substitute for human decision-making, particularly at the strategic level. That's right. And actually, the one area that we are superior to any machine uh, with the best AI is judgment, mm -hmm. particularly judgment where it's around unknown probabilities. So it's about uncertainty. I think you can make robots and AI to look at probability and risk and compute the best probable outcome and what to do. But when you don't have data, we humans are the best to tackle that situation. And I argue this is where we need to train our, our executives to get used to doing, which is taking bets. What are kind of the core competencies that you think executives need to have today to be able to succeed and provide real leadership in this changing world? That's a fantastic question. I think the first mindset executives need to adopt is to be open. And that's like 
Sure. We all, we're very open-minded. Nobody tells you when you ask them, oh no, I'm inflexible. I'm close-minded. Nobody tells you that. Okay. But actually to be truly open-minded is difficult to do because we have limited cognitive capacity. So we end up doing a lot of what we call satisficing, which is a term that was coined by uh, Herbert Simon, as you know who he is. He, he's the yes. uh, scholar who wrote the Sciences of the Artificial. We tend to take a lot of mental shortcuts because we have to process the next, the next piece of information. Because to be open-minded means to not have judgment. To not have judgment means that you keep this information or situational question still at the forefront of your mind so you can you have to keep processing it and that's where it gets difficult for many of us right i mean you can cite many examples i'm sure there's so many examples of how some of the companies missed if you will the transformation to digital you can you know cite examples well-known kodak and blockbuster and so forth these are well-known examples uh, but you know so it's always around leadership you know a lot of management programs will point to these examples and say, okay, what were the management challenges? What were the leadership issues and so forth and so on. But you bring it down to this one item of leadership. You can't say that these were bad leaders. I mean, they are running multi-billion dollar companies brought it to where they be at the apex of market share. So you can't say that these leaders are close-minded. They couldn't possibly have brought the companies to the level they did by being inflexible or close-minded or not being able to adapt. So you can't apply these labels. So it's too convenient. What happens is for many of us, it's not that we're close-minded or we're inflexible, but that we just have limited cognitive capacity. We just need to move on in our mind to what information we process. We don't see changes coming or we dismissed it because it's not important. So having said that, what's the solution? How do, do we like pump in more neurons into our brain? Well, we know <laughs> that's, not po- <laughs> that's not possible. But I firmly believe that our brain, our, our neurons, our cognition can be trained. I mean, I'm a big believer in neuroplasticity, which is we can grow our mental capacity, but we have to train it sort of like muscle building. Sure. All right. So I've put together uh, sort of some concepts around what I call architectural reasoning. And I probably should give you a definition because you probably haven't heard of it. Uh, So I define architectural reasoning to be an individual's thought processes as they enact a series of actions over time to bring forth a design concept into a sustainable and robust concrete form with partial and or disorderly information. Now that's a lot to digest, all right? So I'm not suggesting you do architectural reasoning all the time because that's too much of a load. But in certain situations, you need to enact architectural reasoning as opposed to, for example, many times we have automaticity where you have automatic cognitive processes going on uh, with pattern recognition and so forth. But there are times where you need to take actions, but you need to take actions when you have partial and disorderly information. And these actions have to do with bringing something 
that's a design, an opportunity, or a problem situation that you need to solve into a concrete form where you can test. You see, that portion is very difficult. You have an idea either for a new opportunity or you have an idea how to solve a very intransigent problem. But until you bring it to a concrete form that you could test with, what do you do with it? All right. And this is the part where your cognitive biases or the, the fact that you want to speed up to where you can do something with it is where you take the mental shortcuts. Sure. So, you know, you, you hear of words like prototyping, prototyping, uh, minimum viable product. Those are all techniques, but you still do the mental shortcuts. Yes. See, until you can really condition your mind not to take these mental shortcuts, whatever prototyping you're doing is the result of your mental shortcuts. Okay? Well, that's the danger of so many processes. You know, there's so many things that start out as great ideas, but they as soon as they become a process, as soon as they become a step-by-step process, then our brains start to reduce them to checklists and mm. we stop doing the actual things that those processes are designed to help us do. I was talking, for instance, a few years ago with one of the managing directors of the Development Bank of Japan, and I was advocating using red team thinking to stress test the assumptions that a investment opportunity was based on. And he said to me during a break, you know, this is really interesting because we actually have a a process for vetting investment opportunities. And one of the steps on that process is to challenge the assumptions that the investment opportunity is based on. But because it's become this kind of formal process, he said, the way that it actually works in most cases is that we sit around a nice conference table. And when we get to that step, we ask ourselves, have we challenged the assumptions that this investment thesis is based on? And we nod very earnestly at each other. And then we move on to the next step in the process, but we don't actually do it. We don't actually, we just check the box. And so I think that What you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that we have to guard against getting into those ruts by by challenging ourselves to think more deeply and more actively. That's right. That's right. And we we cannot help ourselves being executives and professionally trained. We need to get to the outcome, right? We have to meet our KPIs. And so we tend to rush through this process. I, that's not, I'm not suggesting people slow down what they do. What I'm suggesting is that instead of making up your mind so quickly about how this will work and just iterate, iterate, pivot, pivot, pivot quickly, go back through the way you think about this problem and consider extreme outcomes, extreme forms of this design. And also on the other spectrum, incremental versions of this design. And in holding these multiple forms on the forefront of thinking about which one of these makes sense as you continue to drive towards evidence gathering, testing the assumptions, using the red team thinking process to test. Because a lot of times people use these tools as sort of a, as you point out, checklist. That's the medication. Let's just go ahead and jab this medication onto this problem. We're done. Next. All right. And so this notion of holding it uh, in the forefront of your mind is very, very difficult and requires training. 
So how can leaders, how can executives or other leaders begin to train themselves to do that? What are some things that they can do? Okay. The first thing you have to do is to recognize that you're not 100% rational. <laughs> That's the first thing you need to do. You're not uh, Spock from Star Trek. All right. That you Darn. do have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. So the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that you have cognitive biases and actually go through in your mind some of the decisions you've made. That was a result of the cognitive bias that you had and reflect on perhaps the outcome. Could you have, would you have made a different decision um, if you didn't practice or didn't adopt the cognitive bias? That's the first thing you have to do. Then what you have to do to train is to go and learn multiple frameworks. I'm not here to advocate any one framework. I think your framework is great, the red team thinking. There is David Snowden's uh, Kinefin framework. There is, um, yes, yes. There is Goblat's uh, theory of constraints. I have my theory. I have a three-gear theory on how our mind works. Well, wait, uh, you have to, I want to hear the three-gear theory <laughs> of, of how our mind works now. All right. I'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, but okay. let me finish with the uh, yes, other yes. items. There's Kaizen, productive thinking. There's, of course, the famous John Boyd's OODA, mm -hmm. right? There is the Book of Five Rings um, from Musashi Miyamoto, okay? Yes. So there are so many frameworks. So to actually practice this, you have to get educated in many, many frameworks and understand the essence of each framework. Then you have to have a lattice of these frameworks that you can pull out in situations that make sense, okay? And that's important for all of us to recognize. Uh, I'll come back to the three-gear theory later, but let me sure. pause here and make a slight, I won't call it degrading remark, but uh, let's just say we academics have a tendency to push only our published framework and use that as the end all. Everything gets explained with whatever framework the scholar had published. So I'm on dangerous ground here, so I better not cite any examples. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, might get, uh, <laughs> I get booted out of the academic club card here. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. I, right? I do, and I, I agree with you completely, <laughs> Professor Shaw. I mean, I always tell my clients that the moment that you think you've cracked the code is the moment you begin to fail. And that's why in my own work with like Red Team Thinking, I continually add to it, continually incorporate new ideas that I get from other people. Like I'm switching to using VUCA with an H now instead of VUCA with the VUCA uh, because of what I've learned from you. And, and that's just one small example, but I think it's so essential that people have this, this learning mindset because it's to be a learning leader is an essential thing if you want to create a learning organization. And learning organizations are the only organizations that can really survive in these turbulent times. Yes. You definitely have been in a lot of situations where whoever you talk to uh, from the academic community, they'll definitely talk about their published work and, and the whole world sort of gets explained with that particular framework. And I think the key to this, and, and I think 
I can't take credit for this idea. I mean, this comes from Charlie Munger from uh, the Berkshire Hathaway fame. He also talks about having a lattice of frameworks. So rule number one, have multiple models from multiple disciplines. Do not be dogmatic about the discipline you come from. Have a wide set of interests. Read history, study war, look at biology, and just have such a wide range of interests and curiosity that you're starting to see situations and context from multiple lenses, okay? And then be educated on all these cognitive frameworks, but do not make up your mind about any one of them, but do capture the essence of each one. Every one of these frameworks have an essence that is core and that is useful. And then make up your mind in, in the sense of when do you use it, how to use it, and why you want to use it. In other words, what's the outcome for each of these frameworks when you use it? Then have it in your head. And so when you look at new situations, you can pull out the correct toolkit. It's no different than if you were trying to build something in, from your, in your garage, right? Let's say you want to build a new toy for your child, right? And you have, you went and got some uh, parts and you go and look at the, open up your toolbox and you have a whole plethora of tools. You've got to use the right set of tools and you've been trained to do that. Same thing with cognition. Educate yourself, have lots and lots of toolkit and be able to use when to use it, how to use it and why you use it. I love that advice. But I, I want to come back to, to the three-gear framework because <laughs> I want to educate myself, Professor Shaw, and add another framework to my toolkit. So okay. what is the three-gear framework? Yeah, the three-gear theory. Oh, it's a very interesting theory. Basically, I teach this to my entrepreneur course, okay, to my entrepreneurship students. I teach MBAs and EMBAs in entrepreneurship and innovation at the National University of Singapore. So I studied the entrepreneurship logic or entrepreneurs, how they think. And I came up with this three-gear theory to explain what goes on in the thinking process of an entrepreneur. And I like to use computers as the analogy to make it uh, easy to understand. My theory is that we have three gears in our brain when we're processing information or looking at opportunities and dealing with situation as an entrepreneur. We have a computing gear, a knowledge gear, and a connecting gear. Think of three circles overlapping like a Venn diagram, right? Sure. So a computer gear is like the CPU. That's fast thinking, zooming in on the gaps, does the quantitative reasoning, does the math. It's the calculator. All right. It's highly focused on computing. It's the problem solver in you. The knowledge gear, think of it as storage, the RAM. Uh, all right. And it's the vast store of knowledge. It can be both horizontal, vertical, you know, the efficient, effective recall, indexing. It's the thinker in you, the librarian. Okay. Then you have the connecting gear, which is the software which is the pattern recognition, the connecting the concepts, people experiences to generate insights. It's the inventor in you, the innovator in you, all right? Now, what's interesting about this theory based on my uh, study of entrepreneurial logic is that I submit to you that you have one dominant gear, 
I'm going to pause and let you think about it for a moment. So, for example, if you have a dominant gear that is computing, you tend to have lower capacity in either the knowledge gear or the connecting gear. I just told you the foundational knowledge. We all have limited cognitive capacity. So if you're dominant in computing, you're going to be lesser in connecting. And realistically, that what does that mean? So if you observe, there are a lot of geeks, right? Super geeks who can really program, but they're probably not as socially adept as you would imagine, right? Uh, they have a hard time relating to people and they tend to look at situations as ones and zeros. And they tend to speak very fast and very abrupt and they lack what we commonly call empathy, right? Sure. So then you have people who are dominant in say knowledge. And this would be your typical academics, professors, who is a walking encyclopedia, immensely knowledgeable, right? But they probably tend not to be very fast speakers, right? They tend to be very methodical because they're going through their vast store of knowledge, doing the connection and then putting forward the information in a way that you can process because you, they assume you also need the knowledge gear in the same way or process knowledge in the same way as they do. The connecting gear dominant person is likely somebody who's a very much a, a person who is able to invent things, very creative, it tends to be perhaps people person, right? They're able to connect the people, what they say and the experiences is important, all right? But I wouldn't ask them to come up with the actuary table, for example, <laughs> all right? So that's, um, that's the three, three gear theory. I, I'd love to hear your reaction now. I, I think it's fascinating. And as I listen to you describe it, it seems to me to be a call for a team-based approach to leadership. Oh, absolutely. And I always tell my um, entrepreneurship students, I said, what does this mean? If you know you have a dominant gear and, and many of them raise their hand, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely one of these, okay? And this comes into play. You've heard of in entrepreneurship, this term called the, uh, the hipster, the geek, and the um, hustler, right? Yeah. So this fits into that uh, you know, colloquial way of saying you need to have multiple personas into your team because you all have a dominant gear. Now, what's in, oh, by the way, Bryce, well, what do you think you are? I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling to, I, as you described it, I, I, I was struggling a bit because I, I think if I had to pick one, I would, I would pick knowledge, but I think I, I'm knowledge leaning a little bit towards the, uh, the, the CPU side too, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. No, actually, you know, I really got to know you in the last few weeks. I'm really honored to, to meet you. But in Likewise. the few times that we interacted on Zoom, I would have pinned you on the connecting gear. Interesting, because that's what I was thinking that, but I thought maybe, maybe I was taking too rosy a view of my uh, abilities. Yeah, so I think um, the way you think about these three gears, how they interact, first of all, there's one dominant gear. Okay. Yeah. Therefore, the other two are smaller. Okay. But they don't have to be equal in size, right? The two smaller ones. Right. They can have dominant one, secondary two, really diminished three, something like that. Okay. And the way it works is the knowledge gear is the one that's super important as the input gear to how you build new knowledge. 
and how you look at situations and opportunities because the knowledge gear is the abstraction gear, meaning you take concrete information and you abstract it into knowledge, right? And that abstraction gear is super important. It's the beginning of all this. How do I find new opportunities? What do I have to do? How do I solve this problem? And then the observations and experiences become also added to that input, to the abstraction, to the knowledge gear, that you need your connecting gear to create insights, to say, what do I do with this information? How do I connect the abstraction, the observations, the experiences to create something new to solve this problem? How do I do that? And this is where the computing gear comes in, right? Because without the computing gear, you couldn't possibly do number crunching. And I'd be hard pressed to, uh, you know, to say that it is any problem that you don't need focus or number crunching going on. There's some kind of math going on. Math defines our world. Okay, I'm not going to go there. I mean, that's a different topic. But you do need that computing gear. Now, how fast, how much you can compute or create these connecting is then dependent on how big a computing gear you have. You may drop information because you don't have the dominant computing gear, right? So, and this is where how you become develop the pattern recognition, the theory building, the opportunity recognition, this how th these three gears interact. So that's how these three gears work together. That's so fascinating. And the more I listen to you unpack it, the more I think you have you have correctly assessed uh, where I lie on on that continuum. It is interesting though, because I think, you know, as you say, all of us have some of each of these, but they're they're in different dimensions. And I go back to, to this idea of team-based leadership because I think that this is the real opportunity is for people to recognize that nobody has all three of these in the amount that they need to have them mm -hmm. in order to be successful in all situations. And therefore, if they can, if they can gather together people who complement their strengths and help gap their weaknesses, that's how you build a really successful team. And by building a really successful team, that's how you build a really successful organization, I think. Absolutely. And I have good news and bad news for you on this. Uh oh. Okay. Let's hear the bad news first. Uh, actually, I prefer to give you the good news first. How's that? Okay. All right. I'll All take right. it. <laughs> okay. The good news is you can actually train yourself to have better gears, to have bigger gears. For example, in knowledge, you absolutely can train yourself by you know, reading a lot, of course, and do some memory exercises so you can have the ability to index and retrieve information quickly. There are absolutely a, you know, training programs around knowledge. And also the other good news about connecting gear is by the virtue of age, by living life, and learning from it, your connecting gear will increase just by living. And of course, you can go through certain training programs uh, in pattern recognition, learning about theory building and so forth, which of course brings me to the bad news. Wait, wait, you have to, you have to tell me though, how can I improve my computing gear though? So that is the bad news. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I have bad news for you. If you're not mathematically oriented. I am not. 
I'm sorry to tell you, it's hard to train you. So in other words, you know, some people can do math in their heads. I know. I've heard that's possible. I'm not one of them. Uh, okay. So no, it's true. Um, I, I used to be able to do that, but I think, uh, you know, just to tell you a little cute little story about myself, I'm, I'm quite old now, but in the old days, uh, my first job was uh, to be an operating systems programmer for Burroughs Corporation. Just how old I am. So it was in the 1980s. So I worked in the operating systems group. So if you couldn't, uh, if you uh, had a bug in your code, the whole system wouldn't even boot up. And in those days, um, the only way you, you could debug your system was to push a button and it would regurgitate hexadecimal in this <laughs> giant printout that's the, the height of a small child, right? All in hexadecimal. I used to be able to read that raw dump and know what's going on. I used to be able to do math in my head in, incredibly. Wow. Yes, I used to. That, that now I, I have to tell you, used to. Okay. So... Yeah, it's very hard to train people who do not think in numbers to think in numbers. The bad news is you can lose it too, as I have over time. <laughs> uh, well, you, you, still, can use all, you can lose all three over time if you wait long enough, I think. I, well, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the really bad news. Um, but uh, because over the years, I've explicitly increased my knowledge gear. I went and got a PhD stuffed myself with a lot of books and explicitly made myself more empathetic, connecting to people. And I, you know, it's, you, you'll be amused to hear this, but uh, it's not until my late forties and early fifties, I even realized people have feelings. Yeah. That's something that took me a little while to figure out as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but because of that, um, my computing year had to take a, compromise, which I think is okay, because to be a true leader, to really make an impact on this earth, you have to build up people. And you can't do that if all you know is how to crunch numbers. So I'm perfectly fine with losing my computing gear. So that's, that's the summary of my three-gear theory. I love it. I love it. And there's you, you've given both myself and our listeners, so many things to think about to increase our, our knowledge gear with and to really think about how we can challenge ourselves to lead more effectively, make better decisions, and better cope with this VUCA world that we find ourselves in. In closing, if you had just one piece of advice out of all this mountain of advice that you've, you've given us, What's the simplest thing that someone can do starting right now to be a more effective leader or to cope more effectively with this VUCA world? Just leave us with that, if you will. Very simple. You take the word dogma and throw it out. Do not be dogmatic about any one thing. We live in a world that is so complex. There is no one framework, one magic tool that will fix everything. So what got you here successful is not gonna get you to tomorrow. So throw that word out dogma and open up your mind to allow multiple frameworks to coexist and to know when to pull them out and build a better world with people around you. That is great advice. Professor Shah, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Bryce. What a real honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com.